who employs more people in the United States than anyone else. And next to the automobile, what is the most widely used vehicle on four wheels? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this edition of The Off-Ramp with Bob and his most significant other, Marsha Smith. Most significant other. You're the only significant other. That's correct. Yes, okay. Roll the music, Lester. (laughs) Thank you. Good old Lester. Yeah. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, Take a side road to sanity and get some perspective on life. Bob and Marsha with you with some good trivia for today. And you have one about the company or the organization that employs more people than anyone else in the United States. Yeah. Who would you want to guess? Well, I would think the federal government has to be the biggest employer. No, not in general, the federal government. Number two is the Army. Okay, so then is it state and local government? Is that who employs more people? No, this is an actual company. Oh, So the U.S. Army employs nearly a half a million active duty troops and another 200,000 in reserve, which makes it the second highest employer in the United States after... After the... Well, I remember at one point it was General Motors, but I don't know. Who who is it? I would have guessed Amazon, but it's not. It's Walmart. 1.5 million people are employed in the United States by Walmart. That is amazing. Worldwide, it's something like 2.5. Wow. So that's uh, that's the big employer. And isn't that amazing? And that started with what essentially was like a dime store in Arkansas. <laughs> I mean, really, it is a fascinating thing. Uh-huh. And that, that company is still controlled by a family. It's yeah. still kind of a family business. So it's a family business. That would have been a good way to phrase it, too. What family business? Yeah, I would have guessed it right No, away, I wouldn't then. have guessed it. That oh. would have been cool. Well, it's too late. Okay. <laughs> All right, Marcia. Next to automobiles, what is the most widely used vehicle on four wheels? Well, that's a puzzle. I'm trying to think. What the heck? Okay, I'll say a golf cart. Well, that's a good idea. I don't think there's that many golf courses around the world. But is this in the world or just the United States? This is in the world. This is the most widely used vehicle on four wheels. Outside the car. Outside of the automobile. Okay. I I don't know, Bob. What? The shopping cart. Oh, that doesn't count. That's not it's transportation. A it's a vehicle and it transports food. No, it is. Okay. It's you set sh- me up there. <laughs> the shopping cart was invented in 1937 by Sylvan Goldman, who owned two supermarket chains. And in the Depression, he saw a problem. People were heading for the checkout counter after filling up just a basket with groceries. And he thought, hmm, if you could make a bigger basket, maybe with wheels, shoppers would buy more each trip and he'd sell more products. So that's what he did. So it is a vehicle. It transports okay. things. And it is considered such an important invention that the Smithsonian Institution has an original one in its collection. (laughs) So there. It's like when we go to Costco, we're going to need a bigger basket. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We're going to need more than one basket. Oh, that's for sure. Okay. I have several uh, military questions today. Okay. Uh, The 45th Infantry Division. Of the Army. Yeah. Okay. Had a Native American symbol as a nod to the many Native Americans who served in their division. But they had to get rid of it. What was it and why did they get rid of it? Well, so it was a Native American symbol with feather, tomahawk, headdress, something like that? No. What was it? It's now commonly referred to as a swastika. 
But the original insignia was abandoned as the Nazi party rose to power, and that was their insignia. Today, uh, members of that division wear a different salute to the American Indian, and it's a Thunderbird. Wow, so their original thing was a swastika, which you're right, swastikas were in all kinds of cultures throughout history, and so it was in an American Indian culture. Yeah, yeah. I've got a funny question. Okay, good. Okay. What do or did all these people have in common? Okay, now listen. This is a very interesting group. Dolly Parton, Debbie Reynolds, St. Francis of Assisi, (laughs) Yuri Gargarin, the uh, first uh, astronaut, Mickey Rooney, and Nikita Khrushchev. What did they all have in common? Good Lord. I know. They all like macchiatos. Uh, I don't know. What? uh, Wait, what do they all have in common? Yeah. Let let me just take one Let me tell him again. Dolly Parton. Wait, are they all... uh, Certain uh, astrological sign or no. something? No. Okay. Dolly Parton, St. Francis of Assisi, Nikita Khrushchev, Mickey Rooney, and Yuri Gagarin, the Soviet astronaut. They all liked lima beans. Tell me, Bob. They were all very short people. None stood more than five foot three inches tall. All those people. I think when you're a smaller person, you tend to work harder, you know, to stand out and uh-huh. to, uh, to achieve. And uh-huh. entertainers. Notoriously, a lot of short people who are singers or entertainers. Yeah. So Tom Cruise is just a little bitty guy. Yeah. <laughs> little bitty. <laughs> but I didn't know St. Francis of Assisi would be in there. No, thing. I didn't know who measured them and why, but okay. <laughs> okay, I got another Army question. Okay. There have been only five five-star generals. That rank didn't even exist until 1944, and then it was retired in 1981. But can you name any of them? And you know all five of these people. I think I do. I think I can name several of them. Okay. Dwight Eisenhower. Correct. Uh, Marshall. Correct. Uh, General Marshall, the Marshall Plan. Uh-huh. Uh, MacArthur. Yes. Uh, there was, a, let's see. That's who was, three. Yeah, I'm getting there. Let me think. No hurry. <laughs> um, are they all World War II? No. No. One had passed on. Okay. Hmm, hmm, hmm. I don't know. Who else? I gave you three of the five. Yes, you did. I yeah, feel which good is, about that. And you should. Uh, the other two were Omar Bradley. Oh, yes, of course. And George Washington. Oh, George he, Washington was the one who was posthumously. Yeah, he was given the rank afterwards. Isn't that cool? Just five in all of time. Wow. Five-star generals. I never did get that ranking thing, but now I do. Well, there were four. Then they became five. Yeah. That's simple. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Thank you, Obi-Wan. <laughs> you know, a lot of industries during this COVID uh, era are going remote. You know, people are doing their work remote. Well, here's a new one. The drilling industry is going remote. Now, for some time now, petroleum companies have relied on remote technology to monitor wells that are producing. They're already pumping But now, with COVID-19, the oil industry is embracing remote drilling. So you'll basically have engineers or crews, instead of being at well sites, they'll be watching steering drill bits cutting deep into the earth using video links and data monitors. Part of it's a cost-cutting measure, too. So they think that some of these jobs will never come back. Had no idea. Yeah. Well, my dad was in the oil industry, so I found that interesting. Yes, he was. He was uh, Dallas, wasn't he? Didn't he have a big ranch? No, no, that's not. Really? You thought I had a lot of money when we got married. That must have been a big disappointment for you. Big disappointment. (laughs) All right. Here, let me tell you something. Okay. The first woman to serve in the Army was Deborah Sampson, 1781. Really? 1781? She posed as a man and joined, and she sustained multiple injuries in battle. 
but treated them herself so she wouldn't be detected as a woman. Hmm. But finally, she got hurt badly enough that she had to go to the hospital, and they figured that out real quick, that she wasn't a guy. (laughs) Hey, this isn't a guy. But they gave her an honorable discharge, and after her death, Congress granted her husband a widow's pension. Wow, so that's the first widow's pension. 1781, she joined the Army. This is probably the first widower's pension. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. So she was a hero of the American Revolutionary War. And of the women's movement, but I never heard of her. Well, I've got an interesting uh, story here. What animated motion picture was declared an artistic delight by the leaders of Nazi Germany? (laughs) Say again. What animated motion picture was declared an artistic delight (laughs) by the leaders of Nazi Germany? Just think the of it. The Seven Dwarves? Yes, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves yep. in 1937. Artistic Delight by Nazi Germany, huh? It was a global sensation, but found particular favor in uh, Germany, where Adolf Hitler secured a private screening. Of course. And Joseph Goebbels, his propaganda minister, gushed over it. He saw it as a revival of a Germanic folktale about a maiden with skin as white as snow. Oh, my God. An artistic delight, he declared oh, it. yeah. But that story, the interesting thing is, that story is in all kinds of cultures around the world, ranging from Japan to Afghanistan to Italy to Hungary to India. Uh, There's like a Greek Snow White. It's been dated to the first century. What wasn't written down survived through oral storytelling, and it was finally written down. The first written down story of Snow White was in the 16th or 17th centuries after the uh, printing press came around. So I'm going to ask you this question now, Marsha. Okay. Who is Sodawa Bai and Snee Frider. <laughs> Who is Sodawa Bai and Snee Frider? That's Snow White in India, oh. and Snee Frider is Snow White in Nordic regions of Scandinavia. But in all stories, she's a girl of unsurpassed beauty, and uh, there is even a Jewish-Egyptian version. Her skin isn't white. Instead, it's as smooth as the outside of a peach. Ah, oh, that's pretty. <laughs> That comes from a new book called The Fairest of Them All by Maria Tatter. So, very interesting. I had no idea the Snow White story went back uh, to all these different cultures. She's got all kinds of psychological thoughts about this, how it, it protects both mother and child from hostile thoughts. They can have them through the story. Huh. Mothers can resent the child, and the child <laughs> can resent the mother. How well, about that, huh? Good times. Okay. <laughs> all right. Did you know Christopher Columbus thought the Earth was shaped like a pear? The story is everybody thought it was flat, but he never thought it was flat. No, I thought he thought it was round, but no, he thought it was like a pear. A anyway, pear. That's not important. The question is, Okay. who invented the telephone? What? <laughs> What's that got to do with Christopher Columbus? Nothing, nothing oh, okay. at all. <laughs> well, there are two people who invented simultaneously a man named Gray and a man named Bell. Gray's, I think he filed his patent a, an hour or two after Bell did. No. Wrong. Okay, tell me the story, Marsh. <laughs> I remember you told me that a long time ago. So when I read this, I thought, got him. Okay. <laughs> in 1860, a Florentine immigrant in New York named Antonio Mucci hmm. demonstrated a remarkable invention. He called it the Teletrofono. Teletrofono. Yeah. Sadly, Mucci could not find a sponsor for his product, and after several mishaps, he couldn't even afford the fee for an even a temporary patent. Enter Alexander Graham Bell, 
who just so happened to share a laboratory with Moochie. Oh, no kidding. I never heard of this. Bell didn't get a patent for his telephone until 16 years later, 1876. That's 16 years after Moochie didn't get his patent. So you're you're asserting or you're suggesting here that Alexander Graham Bell mooched Moochie's (laughs) invention. That's exactly right. (laughs) Yeah, see this stuff. The guy didn't have enough money for the fee, you know? Well... And uh, so Bell came out 16 years later with his prototype from his lab buddy. I never gave him credit. Mm. And I love that movie with Donna Michi. Oh, that, I'm sure Watson, that was... <laughs> come here, I need you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that represented total reality I'm as sure. to what happened. I love that movie. Okay. Okay, we'll take a break now and be back again. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob... And Marsha. Smith. Okay, we're back with the off-ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. Trivia today, an unusual phenomenon that just occurred during COVID-19 in Switzerland. Did you hear about any odd weather in Switzerland recently? No, I did not. This was on Friday, August 14th. <gasps> yeah, I was busy that day. Okay, well, that's the day it rained chocolate in Switzerland. <laughs> yes, for the children of Alton, Switzerland, Friday, August 14th. This will be a day they'll remember for the rest of their lives. Uh, There was a ventilation duct malfunction at a local factory of the famous Lint and Sprungli (laughs) Confectionery Company. Uh You know, Lint. You've heard of those Lint uh, candy bars. I love them, yeah. Yeah, you've seen them in the the airport. The uh, little pieces of chocolate. Oh, just beautiful stuff. with liqueur. So what happened because of this ventilation duct malfunction, the small town of Alton was covered by a storm of chocolate. No kidding. Now, Lint has been in business 175 years and probably never rained chocolate down on any town until this. Yeah, it, it allowed the, it was a defect in the cooling system, allowed the cocoa nibs and fragments of crushed cocoa beans to escape in the air, and the high winds in the area carried cocoa powder. It escaped and settled on the ground. Now, Lint and Sprungli repaired the issue. They've offered to compensate anyone for any damage done by the powder. There have been no complaints. <laughs> <laughs> when you have free chocolate, there's yes, no complaints. There's kids out licking benches and doors, and I'll been it's quite it, a sight. Isn't that funny? I have quite a transition here, too, Bob. Oh, really? From raining chocolate in Switzerland to... Raining cats and dogs. Oh, okay. Where did that expression come from? Oh, boy, there you go. I, I would think it would go back to like a hurricane or tornado, and during the course of that storm, you know, it was raining and cats and dogs were flying around. But I guess I'm probably wrong. <laughs> flying around. Well, you know, like like well, things fly around in it, a tornado. So this is the likely answer. And it oh. does, this is the one that does make the most sense. And I read them all. Okay. But uh, most likely, uh, the term came from writer Jonathan Swift, who used the term in a piece he wrote in the early 1700s. And that was after he wrote about the floods that occurred after heavy rains in local villages, which left dead cats and dogs in the streets. So the streets were flooded, killing animals, cats and dogs. And uh, when it was over, the expression became, it rained cats and dogs. What year was this? Well, it was in the early 1700s. Wow. So it's been around that long. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? But that makes sense. Uh that that would be the leftover from a flood. Well, you and I are thinking alike because I have a question. Why are dogs so afraid of thunderstorms and how do they know to head to their favorite place before they come? Their sense of hearing. Well, could be. Sense of smell. Could be. Both. No. Tell me. Neither. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this comes from National Geographic. 
because uh, they, they said what separates a wailing siren or fireworks from a thunderstorm in a dog's mind? Hmm? Because they can perceive the shift in barometric pressure before the storm. So they feel the storm. Yeah, in, that's why inside they start getting a little weird. And also, for dogs with long and thick hair, static electricity could also add up to the anxiety. If your dog's favorite spot during a storm is in the bathroom, they could be trying to stay near smooth, staticless surfaces for fear of getting shocked. How about that? Huh. We took ours into the basement. Yeah. And that helped. Yep. And me holding him. <laughs> he liked that, too. Remember, we'd be asleep, and he'd, uh, he'd make noise and go down and stand in front of the basement door. He knew what he wanted to do. Yeah, we he did. Know. We but didn't know where he wanted to do Why is he going downstairs again? Yeah. Oh, my God, here He's... comes a storm. <laughs> okay, Bob, here's a quickie. A 2012 poll by Britain's National Army Museum voted this man as the nation's greatest military enemy. They voted this man as the nation's greatest military enemy? Mm-hmm. What country again? Britain. This man, in 2012, the nation's great. Well, I would say Hitler, probably. Nope. Really? Nope. William the Conqueror? George Washington. Oh, that's amazing. The nation's greatest military enemy. Yeah. He beat the heck out of him. Well, yeah. isn't that amazing? Yeah. So that's... Uh, because here's the man who beat the greatest army in the world mm-hmm. with kind of a ragtag band of people yeah. that uh, only fought when they you know, were in a good situation. Yeah. Yeah. That was... And that's the... That was a vote by the National Army Museum that's in, in a, Britain. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, because you always think, I wonder what they think over there about the American Revolution. Oh, that was just one little part of our empire. Yeah, we had to worry. No, no it was a so big George deal. Got a, yeah. Well, so George has got a, well, that's good. A rip. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, uh, this is a question you probably know the answer to. Why do we rarely see a portrait of George Washington smiling? Well, he has bad teeth like crazy. Wooden teeth, no teeth, painful teeth. Yeah, it's the fact that he probably could not smile due to those dentures. And we always think it's wooden teeth, but actually they use materials such as lead, cow's teeth, carved elephant, and walrus tusk. Yeah, ivory they used. Hippopotamus teeth and human teeth. Wow, how would you like to have hippo teeth in your... (laughs) They said if Washington had tried to smile, his teeth probably would have fallen out. They were held in place by a pair of springs. Oh, Oh, that would be awful. His gums must have been so sore. All right. This country's coat of arms features a palm tree and a 19th century American sailing ship. Name that country. Okay, say say it again. Yeah, this country's coat of arms, right, Mm -hmm. has a palm tree Mm -hmm. and a 19th century American sailing ship. Who the heck, what country would that be? Wow. That's not the United States. We know that. That's correct. Is it a South Pacific country? No. No, is it? Is it European? No. Is it a tiny country? Yes. I don't, I don't it's know. not that tiny. It's a country. It's, it's not Portugal or... It's the Republic of Liberia. Wow. In Africa. That ship represents the ships that brought freed slaves from the U.S. to their country. Liberia is on the West African coast, and English is their primary language. But above the ship, it says, the love of liberty brought us here. Hmm. The love of liberty brought, brought us, us here. here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea. So these are American slaves that yeah. went back. That went to Liberia for freedom and a free life. That's great. Okay, I've got an interesting prediction. This came from a, a newspaper clipping, the Tacoma News Tribune, April 11, 1953. 
And this was the uh, president of the uh, Pacific Telephone and Telegraph Company, Mark Sullivan. What was his prediction? He made a prediction about technology. What year? 1953. Uh, About technology. I don't know. Computers landing on the moon? No, it was about his company's product, telephones. Yeah. But this is fascinating. Basically, he said the headline here is, There'll be no escape in the future from telephones. (laughs) Get that right, Paul. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. He said that in the future, now this is, again, the prediction from 1953. In the future, people will be surrounded by telephones wherever they go, unable to get away from them, even if they don't want to be around them. Wow. He writes, just what form the future telephone will take is, of course, pure speculation. Here's my prophecy. In its final development, the telephone will be carried about by the individual like we carry a watch today, 1953. Wow. It is the watch. Yeah. In it, some cases. It probably will require require no dial or equivalent, and I think the users will be able to see each other if they want as they talk. Wow, he's very prophetic. Isn't it amazing? Who knows, but it may actually translate from one language to another. So all of these technologies are are available in your telephone. You have the translation ability. You can see each other when you're talking. through. He got everyone right. From 1953. What else did he say? Anything bad that might uh, we might have coming around soon? No, there's no other predictions here. I just thought that was pretty cool. So that was actually what a gentleman named Mark R. Sullivan, who was a San Francisco president and director of the Pacific Telephone and Telegraph huh. Company, said. So you get it right sometimes. You do. Well, here's a fun one, Bob. Mm-hmm. When Lavinia and Tom got married, they had quite a turnout. Among the guests were governors, congressmen, President Abraham and Mrs. Lincoln, and the entire United States cabinet. Hmm. Who were Lavinia and Tom? Oh, I know. This is Tom Thumb. How did you know oh, that? Oh, I know that was when you said uh, the uh, said the president and the cabinet was there. Yeah. And Lavinia and Tom. And I thought, okay, this was a celebrity wedding, and it was yeah. Tom Thumb and his wife. Who was also a, a dwarf yes. in, in the circus. Yes. And uh, they got married. He was 35 inches tall, and she was a demure 32 inches tall. And when they got married, uh, and in the entire United States cabinet, I mean, talk about celebrity. That's amazing, isn't it? It is. Just that was blew me away. Okay, I've got some interesting statistics here about health, okay? okay, relating to health. In developing countries, the ratio of population to medical professionals is wide. In other words, there is maybe only one physician for thousands of people. Okay, for every one million people in India... How many eye doctors are there? For every one million people in India, how many eye doctors are there? Oh, my gosh. Five? Eleven. Oh, that's Eleven. Sad. That's sad. That's according to the International Council Jeez. of Ophthalmology. It's... And India is a developing country. You know, yeah. it's got a middle class, and it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. really getting very modern and so forth. Okay. Um, before COVID-19, Ebola was one of the scariest recent epidemics. Where and how did the biggest Ebola outbreak begin, and how many people did it kill? Five million. No. We think of Ebola, and it's like, oh, my God, Ebola. Wow. 11,000 people killed oh. in West Africa. That's all. That was it? I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. It began in late 2013 in West Africa. It killed more than 11,000 people there, and it was thought to have started when a child played inside a tree where Ebola-infected bats roosted. Oh, geez. Okay. Now, here is a hopeful statistic. Today, more than two-thirds of all cancer patients treated in the United States are cured. 
How many? Two-thirds? Two-thirds of all the cancer. That's current statistics. Yes, yeah, the current statistics. Well, that's wonderful. That is wonderful. Uh, I wanted to give you something wonderful after all yeah, that other stuff. Yeah, after Ebola, that's good to know. <laughs> Jeez, that should be a headline for good news. You yeah, know? it is. It's enough bad news. Okay, Bob. Yeah? One of the longest fights in boxing history took place in New Orleans in 1893 between Andy Bowen and Jack Burke. You want to guess how many rounds they fought? Wow. Either that or how many hours it took. Ooh, I hate to think of this. <laughs> um, it wasn't one of those things that lasted all day, was it? It lasted like, you know, eight hours or ten? Seven. Seven hours. 110 rounds, only to have the referee stop the fight and declare no contest. So after 110 <gasps> rounds, oh my goodness, uh, they just stopped it. you think it would have happened a little sooner. but And you're beaten to a pulp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Not for the weak of heart like us, that's for oh, sure. Geez. Okay, and then to close out on, I have a funny question. Okay. What profession has been officially banned throughout history but has always survived and thrived openly despite the law? What profession has been officially banned throughout the ages but has always survived and thrived openly uh-huh. despite the law? Certainly prostitution, but what something else that's not funny, so... Well, the answer is it is the law, a law profession, legal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so the answer isn't prostitution or gambling or any kind of thievery. Well, some people might dispute that. <laughs> It's the profession of the law, lawyers. Now, I've got some examples of how the legal profession was unsuccessfully controlled in history, okay? Okay. Under the Roman Code, people in a legal dispute could be represented at the trial by a lawyer, but a specific law, Lex Cincia, passed in 204 B.C., prohibited anyone from accepting money as a gift for pleading a cause. So they tried to outlaw attorneys in that way. You could be an attorney, but you wouldn't make any money at it hmm. legally in the Roman times. The leader of two revolutions, Robespierre in France and Lenin in Russia, were both lawyers. Mm-hmm. There you go. And they each made it a point to abolish the legal profession when they came to power. Really? Yeah, I don't well, understand that. Wow. The Constitution of the Carolina Colonies in America called it a base and vile thing to plead for money or reward, so they didn't uh, like lawyers. In Massachusetts, the Body of Liberties permitted anyone to have another person plead his case for him, provided he gave him no fee. And Massachusetts and Rhode Island prohibited lawyers from serving in their colonial assemblies. Still, despite those laws... The profession of the law has continued. I was hoping to have, I wish I had a lawyer joke to go out on. There's so many good ones. Well, I've I've got a funny advertisement about an attorney. All right. Okay, so this is uh, from 1890. This guy named Major Hopkins was an attorney in Arizona. Come to Major Hopkins and get full satisfaction. I win nine-tenths of my cases. Embezzlement, highway robbery, felonious assault, arson, and horse stealing don't amount to shucks if you have a good lawyer behind you. (laughs) Out of 11 murder cases last year, I cleared nine of the murderers. Having been in jail no less than four times myself, my my experience cannot fail to prove to be of value to my clients. Come early and avoid the rush. Oh, my God, that's hilarious. Okay, I got a pun here. As you know, I love... I loved puns when I was a little lass. I had punathons with my girlfriends. All right, so Bob, how much does a pirate pay for corn on the cob? How much does a pirate pay for corn on the cob? For corn on the cob. And this is a pun. Yeah. I don't know. A buccaneer. 
Oh, <laughs> oh no. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, my nine-year-old self would have loved that. Oh, your nine-year-old <laughs> self is chuckling today. That's for you, Carol. <laughs> my <Thanks>. old chum. <laughs> Thank you, Marcia. That's it for today here on The Off-Ramp with Trivia. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time for more puns and more fun. <laughs> That was a buccaneer. Buccaneer. I love that. (laughs) The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.